Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. If someone asked you about your longest day, what would you say? The Longest Day is a concise crisis podcast hosted by Broadstairs Consulting, joined founder, CEO, Leah Brown, FRSA, don't you know, as you unearth valuable leadership insights from fantastic guests that will help you prepare for your own longest day. Season one of The Longest Day is available now. Tune in from the 11th of September for season two. Hello to Mid-Atlantic, the podcast that delves into politics and culture from both sides of the Atlantic. I'm your host, Royfield Brown, who today is in a rather sunny Birmingham. Joining us today is author Stephen B. Bright, a distinguished figure with a background in law and an extensive career in advocating for justice. Today, we will be exploring the powerful narrative of Stephen's book, The Fear of Too Much Justice. Stephen is a respected figure in the realm of death penalty law who has collaborated with legal scholar James Clark to unveil the many failures within the US criminal justice system. The book highlights instances of inequality, injustice and the struggle for a fair trial. The authors shed light on the systematic challenges that undermine the pursuit of true justice in the United States of America. Stephen has taught law at Yale and Georgetown and is the former director of the Southern Center for Human Rights and is a seasoned advocate for capital cases in the Supreme Court. Stephen, how are you today? Thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. When you're on death row... That's when the clock really starts ticking. He just said, I'm going to do my best. And yes, he saved my life. I was like, I'm not going to make it through this. I can't do 25 years in prison. The people that we've represented have been the most desperate, poorest and powerless people in the, in the country. Stephen Bright is a lawyer, but for his clients, he is their last hope. He's a force of nature, and he has dedicated his entire life, really, to fighting for equal justice. He has argued four capital punishment cases before the Supreme Court, and he won them all. Donna Shackelford was falsely charged with burning down her home. What happened in 2009? My house burned down. I ended up getting blamed. We lose everything, end up homeless, and I was charged with first-degree arson. They offered me 25 years at first. 25 years in prison? Yes. And then- For a fire you didn't set? Right. And then you wrote a letter to someone. I received a letter just two weeks ago. I've lost my job. I've lost my home. I've lost my dogs. Now sleep in my car. 
I'm tired and I'm beaten and I don't understand how to fight this. It's been days now since I've eaten. So Bright took on her case for free. What happened to the charges? Um, they were dropped. Dropped because he'd done a few weeks of investigation. And it was determined that it was actually an electrical fire. How long has it been since you saw him? About a decade now. What would you say to him if you got to see him? Thank you for saving my life. Because of his teaching and influence, he's doing more than most people to make sure that that legacy is carried on by new generations of, of lawyers and advocates. First off, you need to tell us a little bit about you. Why have you become such a champion for shining a light on the inequalities of the U.S. justice system. Why does this mean so much to you, which has led you not only to having a career within the law, but also writing this book? Well, a long time ago, 1979, I was asked to take a death penalty case in Georgia. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. at the time. It seemed odd to me that someone would want me to take a death penalty case in a place where I didn't practice, and we didn't have the death penalty in Washington. And I was quickly told that they'd take anybody they could get because they were so desperate for lawyers, for people who are under death sentence. And it really opened my eyes to an amazing system of injustice of people being sentenced to death at very perfunctory trials, very short trials, often with very bad lawyers, often very clear racism in terms of the people chosen for the death penalty being mostly black, cases in which the victims were mostly white, discrimination in picking juries, a lot of politics, judges and prosecutors using death penalty cases to advance their careers, often at the expense of justice. I took that first case in 1979, and a few years later, 1980, I went to the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta, Georgia. I spent the next 35 years there representing people in death penalty cases, and what I saw just further solidified my view that what was going on here was very unjust and that something needed to be done about it. And so finally, at the end of this time, I, this book pulls together uh, what I observed from being down in the trenches, trying capital cases in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, arguing cases, courts, state, federal, Supreme Court of the United States. And this takes you into where I was for the last 40 some odd years handling these cases. No justice system is ever perfect. It's supposed to be blind. But what are the structural reasons do you think that the US in so many ways is an outlier compared to the comparable countries? America locks up by far the most of its citizens per capita, even more than communist China, let alone other comparable countries. Why is the US justice system so deeply flawed? Well, one of the key aspects is politics. We're the only country where prosecutors are elected as opposed to some sort of civil service determination. And criminal cases are often used for political gain. Very many people launch their political careers as prosecutors. The judges also are elected in most, not everywhere, but all the states that have the death penalty, 27, all have elected judges, and that has an influence. The other thing is, of course, this system deals with the poorest and most uh, powerless people in the society. And as we point out, there's a tremendous imbalance in the system. Prosecutors have remarkable power. They decide whether to seek the death penalty or not, whether to seek mandatory minimum sentences that will keep people in jail for 30, 40 years. That's what drives up that figure of how many people are incarcerated. 
the ability to cut deals with people and say, if you will testify the way I want you to, I'll dismiss your case. Nobody else can do that. that that's, uh, that's witness tampering for anybody else, but prosecutors do it all the time. And so all these things come to bear in the system, which is crushed by the huge volume. When I started out as a public defender in the 1970s, we had about 200,000 people in prisons and jails in the United States. Now it's 2.2 million. It's just been an extraordinary increase, and much of that has been driven by the politics of crime in the United States. And the politics of crime disproportionately land on the shoulders of black, or at least non-white, defendants. Give us the historical throughput from chattel slavery and how some of those remnants are still within the U.S. justice system. The most significant one that I'd point out is that today the death penalty in the United States is almost exclusively in the South, the former slave states, Texas, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, those states. And the sort of interesting historical point there is that back before the Civil War, a lot of the northern states, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Rhode Island, some others, had, had repealed the death penalty. They were already considering whether the death penalty was appropriate or not. That conversation was not going on in the South because with the slave population, they're already in prison. So the only punishment you had to terrify people was the death penalty. And the death penalty was imposed not only for serious crimes like murder, it was imposed for passing out leaflets, anything that might result in a slave rebellion. And so we see the history of that today. Also, the death penalty was imposed in cases where the victim was white. There really were laws that punished crimes differently, depending upon the race of the victim of the crime and the race of the defendant. Slave owners and many white people pretty much took advantage of black women and exploited them and raped them and got away with it. Nothing happened. Of course, if there was any suggestion that a black person had sex with a white person, that would usually result in a lynching at least after the Civil War. So we still see those historical patterns in the use of the death penalty today. It's much more likely that a person will be sentenced to death if the victim is white, and much more likely even more than that if the person accused is a African-American or Hispanic. One of the cases within your book uh, was the case of Glenn Ford, a black man who's wrongly sentenced to death. And this kind of highlights the tragic reality of innocent individuals. Could you just run us through what happened to Glenn and then how the U.S. justice system consistently was failing him at each turn? Yes, it's a very sad case. Ford was accused of killing this man only because he had done some lawn work for him. And He's given two lawyers. Neither one had ever tried a case before. It's a death penalty case. Neither lawyer had ever tried a case. One lawyer was an oil and gas lawyer. It's Louisiana. There was a lot of oil and gas business down there. The other was a lawyer that did slip and fall cases. In other words, if you slip and fell at a restaurant, he would sue the restaurant and say they hadn't kept their restaurant up and you'd try to get some money because you fell down. That's not preparation for representing somebody in a death penalty case. So the lawyers had no idea what they were doing. The prosecutors struck all the black people during jury selection, as often happens in many cases, and Glenn Ford was tried by an all-white jury. 
He was sentenced to death. He spent 30 years on death row in Louisiana, all during that time, maintaining his innocence, raising all these legal challenges to his conviction and his sentence. And yet the courts upheld it all the way through all that time. Finally, the prosecutors admitted that they didn't really have a case against Ford, and they dismissed the case and set him free. By then, he had stage four cancer. He was at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, usually called Angola, this huge plantation prison in Louisiana. He came out a very sick man. He was given $20, no other compensation at all for the 30 years he spent locked up, and within a couple of years, he had died. So... It's a tragic case. One very interesting part of it is that the the prosecutor in the case wrote a letter to the newspaper in Shreveport, Louisiana, where the case came from, and apologized and said, you know, at the time I prosecuted this case, I was young, I was narcissistic, I was ego-driven, and I didn't really care about anything but winning. And it didn't really occur to me that it wasn't fair that he was represented by two lawyers who didn't know what they were doing or that he was tried by an all-white jury. And he said, now I look at it and I see how unfair those things were. And I also see that if we had revealed to Ford then what we knew about the case, he would have never been convicted. So it was a remarkable apology by the prosecutor. I think those things have happened in many cases, but very seldom uh, does the prosecutor stand up and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done this. It was racist. It was taking advantage of a poor person who didn't have qualified lawyers. But there you have it. I didn't realize that there's actually a national registry of exonerations in America. And this is from 2021. They've recorded a staggering number of 2,800 people who found not guilty of various crimes by 2021. And these individuals have collectively endured more than 25,000 years in prison, underscoring the systemic flaws in the U.S. criminal legal system. But I want to just dissect some bits of Glenn Ford's case. The jury, discriminatory jury selection, the prosecution's strategic removal of black jurors. What is the basis of that? What is the tools that they use to try and get all white juries it's uh, part of the American system, which, again, is unique to America. Part of the system is that at the time juries are chosen, of course, as everyone knows, a lot of people are brought into the courthouse and into the courtroom. By the way, at the time Glenn Ford was tried, when you came to the courthouse there in Shreveport, you passed a huge monument to the Confederacy, which had the Confederate flag, had the busts of four Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and two other Confederate generals there and a big, tall spear there with a Confederate soldier at the top and all that. White or black, you went past that as you came in into the courtroom. But the system is that the jurors are asked questions. Of course, some people can't serve because of a hardship where they know the, uh, the witnesses or some reason like that. But once you get those people uh, out and you've got the people who are qualified, the people that can be on the jury, then each side exercises a number of strikes, which just as the name sounds, you just strike. In most cases, it's different in every state, but let's say 10, that's usually what it is. The prosecution strikes 10, the defense strikes 10, and you're left with the 12 that try the case. And one thing that prosecutors have done throughout the history 
of the United States is use those strikes to get black people off the jury, people of color off the jury. Generally, in most communities, and this was no exception, people of color are a minority. So you have a group of people qualified to jury selection, but only more, let's say, four or five of them are black. So the prosecutor strikes those four or five. Now you've got an all-white jury. And that has happened throughout history. Again, going back after the Civil War, of course, in Louisiana and many other places, black people weren't allowed to vote, so they weren't even on the voter rolls. And then they had a system where jury commissioners decided out of the people who were eligible to be on the jury, which people could actually go in the jury pool. This was another way to keep black people off the juries. And then finally, the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. You can't keep those people out because of race. So then the next uh, thing was peremptory strikes, which we still have today. And that's why I think many people are surprised they go in a courthouse in a community that has a fairly substantial, let's say, black population, and they look up there in the front of the court, and the judge is white, and the prosecutors are white, and court-appointed lawyers are white, and all the jurors are white. The only person of color is the person on trial. And people do a double-take and say, why are there no people of color on the jury? One of the cases I argued in the Supreme Court was out of Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, about 15% black. But blacks never served on the juries because the prosecutors always struck them. And and so you have a a part of the community that basically is just disenfranchised, just doesn't participate in the criminal system. And when you speak to a local prosecutor about that, what would be their defense? Now, the Supreme Court has said that if a prosecutor strikes a disproportionate number of, let's say, blacks, and the defense objects, which often doesn't happen. But if it does, the prosecutor has to give reasons for the strikes. So we now have those reasons, and usually they're trivial. Generally, the the real reason is race. The real reason is that the prosecutor thinks, if I leave this black person on the jury, I might not get a conviction or a death sentence because that juror is black, and black people tend to be, maybe will be more sympathetic to a black defendant, or maybe against the death penalty, although if they're against the death penalty, they won't be allowed to be excluded for that reason. They have rationalizations, but I think it really, at bottom, it's race. And of course, for the jury system to work, juries need to be diverse. They need to represent all the people in the community, men and women, black, white, people that do different kinds of jobs and all that. That's the beauty of the jury system when it works, is that you have these 12 people who come from different perspectives, have different life experiences, and bring all that to bear on the decision to be made. But if you exclude certain people from that, a a certain part of the community, really then the jury system's not going to work the way it's supposed to. Just on that, because obviously the U.S. jury system is taken from the English uh, judicial system. It's uh, 12 jurors of your peers. Uh, And just to underline your point, these should be people from the society which you come from. But the jury system does slightly discriminate against poor people, doesn't it? The very fact that you have to go to a court and sit there for whether it's a day, five days, five weeks, if you're pretty hard up, that's going to be something pretty difficult for a lot of people to do. They have jobs to do. Yes, no question about it. And at every stage of the process, 
poor people and people of color tend to be left out. First of all, they send out the notices to come in the mail. People that move a lot or people that are poor may not get their mail. They may not go to the courthouse. So that right there, you're going to lose a certain number of people. People who can't afford, like you just said, to be on the jury. One of the things that I've seen so often in picking juries is you have people of means up there, the white people who, if I'm the defense lawyer, that may not be the people I want to see on the jury. The judge will turn to them and say, now, it's your duty, you know, to be a juror. You're going to do this, aren't you? And talk them into it, basically. But then you have the woman who works cleaning houses or the man who drives a truck or something like that. And they, I can't afford to be on the jury. I can't afford to be without my salary for the next week or two weeks or even a month, whatever it may be. And in that case, they said, oh, sure, we wouldn't want to, we wouldn't want to burden you. So you're excused. So there you lose all those poor people. So they're not going to be on the jury. The other thing in death penalty cases is at one point the prospective jurors will be asked, are any of you have any reservations about the death penalty? Any of you against the death penalty or would feel uncomfortable participating? Overwhelmingly, the people who answer that question, yes, will be people of color because, of course, the death penalty has been used discriminatorily against those people. They will say, yes, you know, I'm troubled by the death penalty or I'm opposed to the death penalty. Well, they're excused, so they're gone. So at every stage, you're excluding poor people of color and getting towards the ultimate 12-person jury, 12 white people of means. So you don't have that cross-section of the community that you hope to have. And I might say, you mentioned earlier that the jury system, of course, comes from England, but they don't have these strikes in England, what we call peremptory strikes. The only strikes are the strikes that a person can't be fair. A person, I know the witness. All right, you're excused. Or I've already made up my mind based on the pretrial publicity. All right, you're excused if that's the case. And that would be the case in both the United States and England. But then in the United States, we have this odd procedure where each side strikes 10, maybe more, maybe 13, maybe six. It just depends on where you are. But that's where... Unfortunately, that's where the discrimination comes into play. Mm. And, and actually, you've made me think if one of the qualifying questions is, do you have any problems with the death penalty? If you end up saying, yes, you do have a problem with it, and you end up being white, chances are in the Deep South that you're left-leaning. So actually, what you're also filtering for is political bias as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't even have to be, like, adamantly opposed to the death penalty. The Supreme Court has said we leave it up to the judge if a person would have difficulty. And what I find very interesting in picking juries, a lot of people haven't thought that much about it. I was surprised. But a lot of people haven't thought that much about it until they're in the courtroom. And then suddenly they see this fellow sitting at counsel table, the defendant, and you may be called upon to decide whether this person lives or dies. Most decent people do, whoa, I, I'm going to decide whether a, another person lives or dies. I, that sounds like a very difficult thing to do. And many people will say, I, I, I don't know. I'm not opposed to death penalty in the abstract, but I would find it very difficult to sentence somebody to death. Judge says, all right, thank you very much. You're excused. You can go home. So the end up, the jurors that you end up with are all the killers, all the jurors who are in favor of the death penalty. We know from many studies 
that those jurors are also much more likely to convict than a jury that's a fair cross-section of the community. So the death penalty cases are really loaded up in terms of having a very prosecution-prone or conviction-prone jury at the guilt phase and a jury very likely to impose the death penalty at the penalty phase. You're listening to recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. We've had record downloads uh, recently, which is fantastic. Each episode is getting just under 10,000 downloads in a month, which is utterly uh, tremendous. If you listen to this at home, what you can do is be part of the live recording of one of these podcasts by downloading the Clubhouse app, uh, searching for Mid-Atlantic. And when we go live with these rooms, you will be alerted it means that you can be in the audience. It means that you then can come up on stage and ask a question to somebody who's been interviewed. So if you're at home, uh, please do that. And for the love of all things holy, please uh, write us a review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever podcatcher you listen to the podcast on. That is the best way for us to get new listeners into the show because uh, the more positive reviews we get, we go up those podcast charts and it exposes us to a new audience. So if you want to be my friend forever and ever, go on to an, a podcatcher, write a review, say that Royfield was ace and that you love Mid-Atlantic, or at least something a little bit more erudite than that. Stephen, a couple more questions from me before I, I throw this out to, to the people in the audience. We've talked about very briefly about the politicization of American justice, whether it is the DA and then how they can filter and kind of gerrymander jurors to get a jury which is more likely to give the prosecutor the verdict that they want. Um, talk to us about Harris County and their kind of troubling record. Harris County in Texas stood out for generating an exceptionally high number of death sentences and executions between 1979 and 2000. We've talked about district attorneys, but let, let's do that again. But then also how judges are compliant in this. So it leads to this disproportionately high level of executions. So let's go back to Harris County. Yes. One thing that many people do not understand is that whether the death penalty is sought depends entirely on a decision usually of one person, usually a white man, and that's the prosecutor whether to seek the death penalty. Overwhelmingly, most cases, there is no consideration of the death penalty ever. The death penalty is imposed in a very few places, but one of them is Harris County, Texas. That's Houston, Texas. And at one time, the time you mentioned, the prosecutor there was Johnny B. Holmes, Jr., And Johnny Holmes sought the death penalty at every opportunity. Any murder case that came in, he sought the death penalty. And the judges in Houston usually assigned completely incompetent lawyers. And I'll just tell you how bad they were. Three cases where lawyers slept during the trial. Now, this is people trying a death penalty trial. And the lawyers are so uninterested that they fall asleep during the trial. Lawyers who were suspended from practice by the bar. Lawyers held in contempt because they weren't ready. These are the kind of people who are being appointed. So for the prosecutor, it's like shooting ducks on a barrel. They, high-powered prosecutors, very pro-prosecution judges, judges in Harris County, many of them were former prosecutors out of Johnny Holmes's office. So you just have a terrible situation there. And 
at one point, Harris County was sentencing 11 or 12 people to death every year. That's more than many states were sentencing to death a year at that time. Today, over 130 people have been executed who were sentenced to death in Harris County. That's more than any state except Texas itself. So this one county in Texas has executed more people than any of the other 49 states or the other 26 states that have the death penalty. And in fact, the state in second place, Oklahoma, 120. After that, Virginia, which no longer has the death penalty, 113. Only one other state over 100. And yet here's this one county in Texas, this combination of very aggressive prosecutors, very incompetent defense lawyers, with these people being sentenced to death. The other thing about the defense lawyers that I should mention is the judges are elected there. And when the candidates ran for judge or judges ran for reelection, the lawyers there in Houston contribute a lot of money to their campaign. And then when they get elected, the judges appoint those lawyers, not because they're qualified to represent somebody in a death case or another criminal case, but because they gave uh, campaign contributions. It's basically a patronage system. And so those lawyers are appointed. They're not very good. Uh, Their clients are convicted. Their clients are sentenced to death. And the lawyers make a lot of money. Last year, one of those lawyers made over $500,000, believe it or not, being a court-appointed lawyer doing a bad job representing clients in criminal cases in Harris County. Utterly stunning. Utterly stunning. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. On that, let's continue with financial exploitation because uh, one of the things which does mark out the U.S. justice system compared to uh, the English one, uh, where it's de- derived from, is this for-profit motive. Give us some examples of how, not necessarily w- with death penalty cases, but right. how a simple case can trip somebody up who just happens to be poor or of average means and how the system is weighted against them. Very much, and particularly in cases involving what people would call petty crimes, minor crimes, misdemeanors, the system in many places is geared up not to produce justice, but to produce profits. Somebody's arrested for some small crime like disorderly conduct or smoking marijuana, or even a traffic offense, driving too fast or failing to stop at a stop sign. They're hauled into court. They 
usually plead guilty, although some people will plead guilty even though they're innocent because they're told if you plead guilty, you'll get out of jail today. If you don't plead guilty, you're going to stay in jail until your trial, which may not be for several months. So people do plead guilty for that reason. And when they do, the judge will impose a fine, let's say $1,000, and then a whole series of add-ons and fees, $10 for this and $50 for that, and on and on, until by the end of it, the person owes, let's say, $1,500, $1,800. Of course, the person has no money. They can't pay it. It's poor people. A judge says, no problem. We'll let you pay on the installment plan. We will put you on probation, and you can pay in 12 installments. What the person learns is that there's a private probation company, not a taxpayer-supported, but a private company will collect those monthly payments. But for doing that, they will charge a monthly fee of $40. So here's the person trying to pay off this $1,800 debt that they owe the system. Now they're having to pay an extra 40 every month. For many people who can't make the payments, they're going to owe more later than they do at the start because those monthly fees are going to be added up every month, 40, next month, 80, next month, 120, and so forth. And then they'll be hauled back into court. They'll be told, pay up or go to jail. Some people pay up. They'll mortgage their house or they'll sell their car or call grandmother, do whatever they can do to pay. Most people can't. And so they go to jail. There are debtor prisons all over the United States full of people who are unable to pay their fines and fees. And the thought is that if you put these people in jail and you say, now you can get out whenever you pay, that their families, their loved ones will somehow come together and, and, and come up with the money. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, but it's a very coercive system. You may remember Ferguson where a person was killed by a police officer and the Justice Department investigated and said the legal system in Ferguson was for generating revenue. Police officers had, and this is true all over the, the country, they'll have uh, quotas. You have to write so many tickets. You have to pull over so many drivers on minor things like not having uh, a light, the light on your license plate is out, or you have too many air fresheners hanging from the uh, mirror in the car and write tickets for people because that's how the revenue for that town was generated. Wait, wait a minute, Stephen. Too many air fresheners. It can, can be a crime. What What's the, the crime committed there? It blocks the vision of the driver, theoretically. Of course, it's ridiculous. We all know people are arrested for speeding. Uh, people are also arrested for not going fast enough. One of the worst things that to people accused of is weaving. A person is driving a car and the police pull them over and say that instead of driving straight, they were weaving. That's, of course, the eye of the beholder. That's an easy kind of crime for a police officer to charge a person with, and there's no real way to know whether it's true or not. Sometimes it isn't, but it's a lot of vague stuff. And the important point here is that the motivating factor is not public safety. The motivating factor is revenue generation. Again, this is one of the key differences between the U.S. and the U.K. system. There isn't such a rigorous, punitive uh, financially driven aspect to UK law. 
And actually, one of the things which we rolled back in the UK in the last 20 years is a thing called legal aid, which I believe, and so and somebody could email in to me and tell me that I'm wrong here, almost 50% of people going to trial in the UK up until about 20 years ago qualified for legal aid. So the bar uh, was set relatively high financially in terms of your means. So if you were relatively poor, you could go and get a top lawyer, a top barrister, and actually the government aid. And I think this is one of the, the biggest travesties of, of the UK justice system, that legal aid hasn't completely gone, but the bar is falling so low now. So if you are on modest means, um, you can't get um, a top lawyer or a barrister, as we'd call it in the UK, to actually to defend you. But another difference, and it's going to be the last question for me, and I'm going to ask people in the audience, please come up and ask Stephen a question. The book is utterly fascinating. If you aren't really au fait with the nuance of American law, and even if you are, it's shocking in terms of how the weight of this system disproportionately weighs down on black people, people of colour and people of modest means. The system is so rigged against them. Uh, the book is called The Fear of Too Much Justice. It's utterly brilliant. But the last question for me, again, just this aspect of the financial jeopardy uh, that people find themselves in. Considering that 50% of the listeners of the podcast are actually British, uh, tell us about the bail bonds industry uh, and how that profits by supposedly giving individuals a way to secure their release. We don't have this in Britain. If the judge says when you are being arraigned, the judge will say, I believe that you can, until trial, you can sit at home and, and live your life, but you need to turn up on this date. There is no amount of money set in Britain. You're either in jail waiting for trial or you're out of jail, full, full stop. And do not get me wrong, if you are brown or black in the United Kingdom, you're more likely, depending on the severity of the alleged crime, to sit at your time in jail. So I'm not saying we're a utopia here, but there is no financial. You give us $10,000, half a million dollars, $20,000. That doesn't exist in, in, in the UK. You're either in or you're out at the judges say so. So please explain the bail bonds industry and how, yet again, people who are of modest means fall foul of that. Unfortunately, as you alluded to there in the United States, in many places, not everywhere, there's some places that do not allow this, but in almost every state, except for two or three, basically a person who's arrested, the judge will say, you may see this in the media, $50,000 or $100,000 is your bond, is your bail. You can't get out unless you can pay it. Now, of course, if you could pay the whole thing, you could get out, but nobody can do that except very rich people. For most people, they have to go to a bondsman, which is really an insurance company. The theory of it is that the bondsman comes in and says, I'll make sure this person comes to trial. And if they don't, the bondsman is on the hook for the $50,000 or 100000 whatever it will be, like an insurance company. In fact, that really never happens. The bondsman usually charges 10% of whatever the bond is to the person or the family that's getting the person out. And they never get that back, which what some places have done is said, you pay 10% to the clerk of the court. And then if you come to court, you get it back. That's a pretty logical system. 
because it gives you an incentive to come because you're going to get the money back. If you have $10,000 bond, or you put up a 10% of that, come to court, you get it back. But that's not the way the bondsman works. Also, bondsmen have incredible powers that nobody else has. They can cross state lines. They can do whatever it is to go get people, arrest them, bring them back, take them to court. And also, as we document in the book, and it's more complicated than I'll go into here, but just that bondsmen have all sorts of ways of adding additional fees and costs to to take advantage of these families that are trying to get their breadwinner out of jail so the person can can keep working and can live at home and all that pending trial, but they can end up owing a lot of money to these bondsmen. And, and of course, for an awful lot of people who can't afford the bonds at all, they just stay in jail. That There are an awful lot of people who don't have very high bonds, but it doesn't matter because they can't afford to pay at all, as opposed to a system which says, particularly on minor crimes, you can remain in the community, you can stay at work, you can stay at home, come to court on a date. If you don't come to court, we'll issue an arrest warrant. We'll pick you up. Most people come to court if they're released into the community, unless they have a very serious mental illness or something like that, which might keep them from coming. But So it's a corrupt system. There's some changes being made in a very few places. I just say this, closing that one of the things we try to do in this book is look at the places that have seen how do we do it right? How do we deal with race? Like in Washington, the state of Washington says, nope, there's race discrimination, the death penalty, not going to have the death penalty in the state of Washington. There's some states that provide people with very good public defenders, New Jersey, Colorado. There's some cities or jurisdictions that provide people with good lawyers. Not very many, but there's some. And our sort of theme throughout this is we know what justice is, but we're just afraid to provide a full measure of justice for a variety of reasons. Now is the time, if you're in the audience and you've got a question about the book, The Fear of Too Much Justice and How Race and Poverty Undermines Fairness in the Criminal Courts, please come up on on stage. Invariably, your question will be maybe much more insightful and impactful than mine were. Uh, Marshall, over to you, sir. What's your question to Stephen? Howdy. Stephen, thanks for being here. I know it is a commitment of some time. The question I'm wondering about, and it probably has a more open-ended answer. If the amount of money you have in your bank account gives you a certain amount of access to the justice system that other people don't have, can we really say that the justice system is in any way just? A long time ago, the Supreme Court said there can be no equal justice when the kind of justice a person gets depends upon the amount of money he or she has. Today, nothing matters more with the kind of justice a person gets than the amount of money he or she has, which is your point. It's really troubling to me that in all kinds of cases, not just in criminal cases, but that's certainly very important because we're talking about life and liberty, but the quality of justice depends very much on how much money people have. And in the civil area, somebody is facing a loss of their child. They may not be able to hire a lawyer to go to court to show why they're entitled to maintain custody of their child or whatever it may be. It's a very expensive system. You see right now in the Trump case down in Atlanta where people like Ruli Giuliani are talking about how they can't afford lawyers to represent themselves. That's in a felony case involving conspiracy and racketeering and all that. 
But for an awful lot of people of average means in society, they just simply can't afford whether it's a civil case or, or a criminal case. Thank you for that question, Marcel. Lou, what is your question for Stephen? Yes, thank you, Stephen, for being here today. I have a very quick question, or maybe a stupid question, but as it seems to be that one of the problems in the American uh, system, juridical system, is the immunity of the prosecutors, as you stated yourself, which was created in 1976, if I'm not mistaken, by the Supreme Court. I was wondering, is something being done to limit, let's say, the damage of corrupted prosecutors. And I'm thinking about maybe creating an oversight board in order to, to monitor offices and report a misconduct. Sure. As you point out, and as is the case, the Supreme Court just out of the whole cloth invented something called immunity for prosecutors meaning that no matter what prosecutors do, no matter the pursuit of an innocent person, no matter what kind of misconduct, no matter what, they absolutely cannot be sued for anything they did as a prosecutor. There may be an exception if they were involved in the investigation of a case and they weren't acting as a prosecutor but as an investigator, but that's another sort of technical realm out there. With regard to some sort of oversight boards, at one time, Oversight boards were proposed as a way of dealing with serious misconduct by prosecutors, such as hiding evidence that a person was innocent. The first state to have one of these was New York, and the prosecutors in New York went all out to try to prevent this from happening. And then when it did happen, filing a lawsuit, get it tied up in court. Now, more recently, we have had across the country a number of progressive prosecutors elected. That is, people that have run on a platform of saying prosecutors have so much power and so much discretion that if I'm elected, I won't seek the death penalty. Uh, I won't ask for money bail for poor people who are arrested. I'll let them go home and come to court and so forth. A number of other reasons. I won't prosecute minor crimes. Now, there's an effort to go after those prosecutors. Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida has already suspended two prosecutors, two people elected by the people, one in Tampa and the other in Orlando, that he thinks are too liberal, basically. And he has suspended them and appointed another person to prosecute cases in those jurisdictions. It's very disturbing. Georgia just recently passed a prosecutorial or a commission like New York's, but the motivation was not the motivation that I described earlier in New York about worrying about people who've not disclosed evidence of innocence or have engaged in other kind of misconduct is to try to go after the progressive prosecutors. And this is very interesting how this is all playing out. The fact of the matter is there should be some sort of commission or board, in my opinion, to deal with ethical complaints against prosecutors because the bar associations are not equipped to do that. Every state has some sort of judicial qualifications commission or judicial misconduct commission so that if there is ethical violations by judges, they specialize in that and they deal with it and they can remove judges from the bench. The same thing should apply for prosecutors, but the prosecutors have pretty much kept that from happening. And now to the extent that it is happening, it's motivated for other reasons. But maybe at the end of the day, 
something positive will come out of that. We'll see. Um, excellent question, Lou. And, and in many ways, that question has preempted my last one, uh, Stephen, was to say, how can we uh, affect change? Very obviously, your book is a, a very small market in the direction of how America can affect change. But if there were five things which the US justice system needed to change, so justice was more truly blind, what would those five things be? Number one would be in all cases that police and prosecution files would be disclosed to the defense. We have trial by ambush in way too many places. The second would be that everyone accused of a crime would be represented by a very capable public defender with the resources, the investigators, social workers, paralegals needed to represent that person effectively. The third thing is we would have judges selected in a merit selection process, not by running for office. There's some examples of that in the country, but not very many. There need to be more of that. Fourth, we would not allow fines and fees to be imposed on people that can't afford to pay them. Back when I was a public defender in the 1970s in Washington, D.C., if a client of mine was put on probation, I took them to the probation office, introduced them to the probation officer, and that person wasn't there to collect money and it didn't cost anything. That person was to help deal with whatever it was that got that person in trouble and to try to help them get their life together. That's what the probation department should be. It's not a fundraising operation. And finally, in fifth, we have to deal with mental illness. The largest mental institution in any community in this country is the local jail because all these mentally ill people are being dumped in the jail because we don't have mental health facilities for them. And we need to train police officers on how to deal with mental illness. A lot of mentally ill people are killed in confrontations with police officers because police don't understand what's going on. We point in the book to the example of Miami, which has done that training uh, and which has put together a huge mental health facility that provides everything from mental health care to dental care to medical care to housing to you name it, and is basically keeping mentally ill people out of the jail and is dealing with them in a different way. So those are some of the, the things, just fundamental things that need to change to get us on track for justice in the justice system. You've given us the five pointers. You also told us at the start of our conversation, historically, some of the reasons why the US justice system weighs so heavily on black people and people of color, because some of those legacies of chattel slavery are still within some of the statutes of US law. Yes, and I should have said we also propose ways to reform the jury selection system so that this discrimination against people of color in striking juries does not occur. That's fundamental, too. Oh, well, okay. Uh, let's say you have six six points. Yes, six. Last question, a bit of a statement, a bit of an observation. America locks up per head of, the, of its population per capita more of its citizens than any other country in the world. It has a prison industrial complex which is without parallel throughout the industrialized, if not the rest of the world. Do you think your average American who is blind to, let's say, other systems of justice throughout the world is proud of the US justice system? Because if you're locking up this amount of people, surely 
crime is being taken from the streets. What does the average American, not poor, let's say solidly, boringly, suburbanly middle class, do you think that they believe that the US justice system is fit for purpose? Unfortunately, I think that the justice system is out of sight and out of mind for most people. The criminal courts deal almost exclusively with poor people. There's some exceptions like the Trump cases. There's some exceptions of the mob cases and white collar crime and all that, but very little of that. 90% of the people that come into the courts are poor, too poor to have their own lawyer. But I think for a lot of people that are wealthy or even middle class that are living in the suburbs and going to the schools that they go to and the whole society is segregated, unfortunately, all over the country, the problems of poor people are just not on their radar. And I think one of the things that we hope with regard to this book is, is that if more people know about these problems, that they will agree that they're unacceptable. One thing we point out is that the courts are failing in the most fundamental job they have. That's separating the guilty from the innocent. If you can't even do that, then something is bad wrong because the, the theory of the United States justice system is that innocent people are protected and the only people who go to jail are people who are guilty of having done some serious offense against the people. And that's not true. Innocent people are being convicted. And when that happens, it means the perpetrators of those crimes remain at large in the community. So people have a real interest in having this system work. You recited earlier just how many exonerations there have been and how many years people spent in prison who should not have been there. That should be extremely disturbing to any person. And we ought to be with some urgency, trying to fix these things, particularly right to counsel, particularly powers of prosecutors, particularly race discrimination, to keep those things from happening in the future. I keep fibbing and saying that I've asked my last question. We've got one more. With the rise of DNA evidence and with the fact that just about everybody now has a video camera in their pocket, i.e. their phone, what effect is this having on U.S. justice. Does this mean that exonerations are going up and we should at least give that a tepid thumbs up? Or are there other tools that maybe the justice system can deploy to block, let's say, citizens filming wrongful arrests and judicial malfeasance? I would agree with a tepid thumbs up. I think what NA has taught us and what cell phones and other surveillance has taught us is just how often the system got it wrong. Before the DNA exonerations, a lot of people thought there were no innocent people ever convicted in the criminal courts. The great judge learned hand once said, don't worry, with a presumption of innocence, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, innocent people are not convicted in the criminal courts of this country. He was a very respected and appropriately respected judge. Today, that would be preposterous for anybody to say that because the DNA cases tell us, one, Michael Morton did not commit the crime he spent 25 years in prison for. And another person who, unfortunately, after killing Mr. Morton's wife, went on to kill another person, that is the person who actually committed the crime. So we know the jury, beyond a reasonable doubt, got 100% wrong. 
in that case. And by the same token, we know that Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd because somebody took out their camera and filmed it. That conviction would never have taken without that video. The same thing for the Maud Arbery case in Georgia where the white guys ran down the black jogger and killed him. The only reason that case got prosecuted was because the videotape, phone videotapes of that murder. And that's good. Unfortunately, DNA evidence is only about 10% of all criminal cases. So there are a lot of cases there is no DNA evidence. And while there is a lot of surveillance and certainly things like body cam videos of the police and dash cam videos, we know, for example, in Chicago, they tried forever to suppress the videos that ultimately showed that this young man, Laquan McDonald, was shot 16 times by a police officer there and ultimately ended in the police officer being convicted. But there are an awful lot of places where there is no evidence and we still have to rely upon trials, people testifying as witnesses. And if that's the system you have, then there has to be disclosure of information so it's really tested at the trials. And there have to be competent lawyers so that people are, um, the trials can actually serve their purpose. Adversary system doesn't work if one side doesn't have the lawyers, the resources necessary. And as we talked about earlier, it also won't work if the juries are not a fair cross-section of the community. So we have to end the discrimination in jury selection so that juries that decide these cases are representative of their communities. Stephen, thank you for coming on to the show. Tell us about the book very quickly. Tell us about your partner, James. We briefly mentioned him at the very start. What was it like to collaborate with him? And tell us how long it took you to compile the book. Thank you. Yes, James Kwok was a student in my class at Yale many years ago. In fact, when he was in the class, and as far as I knew, it was just one of about 35 students that I was teaching. And Someone mentioned to me that James has a book on the New York Times bestseller list. He had written with another person there, the book 13 Bankers, about the financial crisis in 2008-2009. And he's a very accomplished person. He's a lawyer. He was a person who developed software that was very valuable. He was a law professor at the University of Connecticut Law School for 10 years. He's a cellist at two different orchestras in New England. So he's a really remarkable person and and a good friend. And we wrote this book together. I'd been down in the trenches. I'd seen these things. And because I'd been involved in the cases, James had a different perspective of it and had a part of what we wanted to do was test what I had seen with what of the studies found, documentation is there out there and all that. And it was a good collaboration, putting those things together and working back and forth, writing the book. Stephen Bright, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and telling us about your book and the U.S. justice system. The book is called The Fear of Too Much Justice. And we've had a blockbuster, a really in-depth hour speaking to Stephen, a man of many legal accomplishments. Why don't you send me in an email if you want us to continue to talk about the US justice system and compare and contrast it with the UK justice system, which is not a justice system without its problems. You can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com. That's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. And we can continue the conversation. Don't forget, people left of centre politics is right thinking politics. And what we need to do is put an end, draw a line under 
this neoliberal system which has exacerbated wealth inequality, increased poverty and disenfranchisement for the last 40 years. Take care, look after yourselves. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.